Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance, helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM, let's create. I think it took me a long time to not work really hard to be Ted. You know, I worked really hard to be Ted and it was exhausting. And the Ted would have looked very similar to this. It wasn't that the silhouette was there and it much different than this. You would say, oh yeah, I see that. I think I was always a little bit that way, you know, until I really started to examine myself. Luckily, when I was you know, like 40 or something, I finally kind of matured and was willing to tell the truth and look at myself and all of that. That was Ted Danson. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Since the 80s, Ted Danson has been a great source of comfort. You can't say that about every artist, but I can think of no better way to describe Danson's effect on me as a viewer. His decade-long performance as smooth-talking bartender Sam Malone is still something I return to. In fact, I want to credit Cheers while we're here. It has been a trusty, quarantine companion throughout this madness. Of course, Danson's career went on long after the lights at Cheers went out. You've seen him in shows like Becker, Bored to Death, and Curb Your Enthusiasm, and indie films like The One I Love and Hearts Beat Loud. Most recently, Danson completed the final season of The Good Place, the hit NBC sitcom created by Michael Schur. 
Set in the afterlife or something like it, it's an unconventional sitcom, one mostly interested in dealing with moral matters, what it means to be a good person, and how that goodness, virtue, is relative. Through four seasons, the show contemplated heady ideas of right and wrong with a sense of humor. It showed characters, including Michael, Danson's angel-demon architect, grappling with their own deficiencies and insecurities. All of this in a quest to be a better person, someone decent. Given the precarity of this moment, I thought Danson would be an appropriate guest, a stabilizing force for you and I. I didn't know he'd be a decent or good person, but I made an educated guess. But I also assumed that he didn't arrive at kindness by accident or suddenly. It never seems to happen that way, does it? So I wanted to find out the how and when and why of his generosity. And that's what we did. I hope you enjoy it. Ted Danson, uh, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's very exciting. It's like flying blind, and uh, and it's my entertainment for the day, and uh, a bit of lightheartedness. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here. You know, you have described yourself as someone that moves very fast, that is always going from one thing to the next. Uh, you and your wife both describe yourselves that way. I'm curious, how are you making do in this situation where you can't go anywhere at all? I'm pretty good at having this. When I hear news, I came home on March 4th, and I think that was the day when all of a sudden everyone was beginning to say, well, this is huge, this is big, this is real. And I'd been working, and I came home, and I had two days off, and I was going to go back to work. Mary said, what are you doing? What are you even thinking about going back to work? And I was so angry at the news, at the information, and I couldn't digest it. I, I couldn't understand that everything was going to stop. And I, I think I was angry for about maybe an hour or two, or maybe the whole night, and thinking maybe Mary was wrong. And uh, the next day I woke up, and it was very clear Maybe it took me two days to go, all right, adapt to the new normal. And then I'm pretty good. Maybe I stuffed my feelings and my fear down a little too much, but I'm pretty good at going, okay, what does this job look like? All right, survive, take mm -hmm. care of your family, eat, clean, wash, try to understand. You know, I got into that mode and I stayed there for about, a month, and then when I heard talk about opening up or something, that panicked me. That was like, <laughs> oh, I, I couldn't even think about, we were sent scripts to read uh, for this new show I'm working on, and that was, uh, was penetrating my little bubble, and it terrified me, you know? So right. anyway, that was the kind of silhouette. Inside of this time, um, of not working and not going fast has been one of the great joys, I think, of my life, to be honest. I don't think I would have stopped with work. I would have just tried to keep going. That's what I do. I'm a contract player. I keep working. I love to work. 
But this afforded me to stop and really turn and look at this woman who I'm madly in love with, but we were really going side by side very fast, not not stopped in one place and turning and looking at each other and going, hi, wow, hi, you know, and we've had that that experience over and over again. We know how ridiculously lucky we are. We are mm-hmm. blessed, you know, it's not fair, it's not equal. People are suffering hugely, and we're not. We have our own little bruises and nicks and, you know, to our hearts and all of that, but we're not those people who are on the front line saving all of our lives and allowing us to stay in place. So with that in mind, there's so many silver linings in our relationship and our love for each other and our experiencing joy just being together that I, I am actually grateful that we at least had this experience, not, not the experience of COVID, obviously, but the experience of stopping and smelling the roses, as it were. The idea that you brought up that I love is you as a contract player. Do you think that starts with your father, you know, someone who was an archaeologist but really went against the grain? Uh, your family had a tremendous amount of money, and when he ventured into archaeology, it was not something they were terribly uh, happy about, it seemed. His uh, mother, father, sisters kind of people, I think, were not happy with it. Um, He fell in love with the Southwest. He grew up in Glendale, Ohio, and um, he was, you know, these are the things you're saying, oh, should I even say this at this day and age? Um, But he grew up with upstairs, downstairs, you know, he was to the manor born. He, uh, his father had started a company and was best friends with Procter and Gam- Procter or Gamble, one of them. And um, he knew those people. What's that? Those were actual people. Yeah, pushing <laughs> carts, soap carts, you know, soap wagons on the streets of Cincinnati. So then he passed away when my father was ten, and then there was the big old depression and all of that. So uh, things changed, but they definitely had money. But then he drove to Arizona to go work one summer when he was like 18 and he fell in love with the Southwest. And I have to say he made his entire life and livelihood out of that love. He became an archeologist and museum director. Uh, He made $10,000 a year, got a free car and a free house. And that's how we lived. We lived in this two-story log cabin and, you know, I never had a pair of jeans that didn't have holes in them. And I got on horses and rode that away or that away every morning and came home at night. It was just kind of a wonderful, amazing, but not, there was money, obviously, but not that you could see by our belongings or our surroundings. Mm -hmm. You said that the unspoken message I got as a child was that we had nothing. We didn't have TVs. I looked like a ragamuffin. My clothes were all hand-me-downs. My dad worked and there was enough money for the necessities, but getting more and more money was never a goal. Yeah, but I mean, they had enough money to send me to a private school in right. Connecticut when, you know, for high school, so I don't want to be misleading. But my mother was kind of that reverse snob. You know, <laughs> my father eventually bought a old Mercedes, which he loved. He loved cars. My mother drove a $200 Buick convertible and boasted and bragged about it and was ashamed about my father. You know, she was a reverse snob. So 
and she wasn't really into material things. And my father was into science and and uh, digging holes in the grounds with archaeology. You know, so our life was outside of town. We were kind of country folks, and our so we had money, but I never saw it or realized it. But the gift was that money was never in my head. It was like. My brain was told at an early age, if you follow your, your bliss, your love, money won't be a problem. Mm. And that's an amazing, you know, whether that's true or not, or a truism. For me, it was kind of my mindset. I never worried about money, and I didn't care if I didn't have any, and I didn't care that much that I had it until later in life where it was like, oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Once you actually had money. Once there was the fear of losing it. <laughs> You're right, right. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah. You you build these these principles for yourself, and then yeah. reality has a way of challenging them. We had this thing. This is going to sound so bizarre. So I was at a, a prep school. It was like the English school system. It was six, you know, second form through sixth form. It was called Kent, and I am proud of that school. And. Uh, some of the stuff that it gave me. But it was it was strange from this kid who had Hopi Navajo friends and rancher friends to go back to New England and preppy and all of that was really strange. But there was this phrase described uh, irony. You know, the phrase was e-yaw, and e-yaw, and it usually came with a finger pointing at the person that irony is for <laughs> descending upon. So if I were to turn to somebody and say, you know something, you're a real slob. And as I said slob, the food in my mouth would come out of my, you know, <laughs> and dribble down my shirt. That was an e-yaw. That was mm. the ironies. Uh, and it's, life is, I just love irony. <laughs> I, every time I declare myself something, life comes along and goes e-yaw, <laughs> you know, and demonstrates that I'm full of shit. Well, I think we can be honest in the next hour and call each other out when we're full of shit during this exchange. Yeah, good. I hope you do that for me if I do it for you. Great. Um, well, let me some... back up then. Your mustache is a source of pride for you, and you, you, <laughs> mock, you mocked it, and clearly that was, that was bullshit. It's really not. It's really not. That is, that, is, that is not even false humility. It's actually something I'm only keeping because of the woman I'm seeing. Okay. she likes it. Oh, well, that's real good reason. It's, it's honestly the only reason that matters. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, at this school, at Kent, yeah. you have a teacher, uh, a basketball coach named Jim Woods. Yeah, Jim Wood. The, Jim Wood. I, I called him Woods all the time. I don't know why, but it's Jim Wood, yes. Um, you credit him with saving your life. I don't know if he saved my life, but he taught me things that put me on a path that served me forever. And I, I was lost. I'm not an academic. I was, you know, when acting came along later in life, it was, oh, thank God, there is mm -hmm. a job that fits my description. Um, so what he gave me was that the team, you're part of a team. You know, it's not about you. It's about the team. It's about the game. It's, you know, it's not about you. And the joy of being part of a team stuck with me uh, for life. He was also the one who could grab me, he didn't do this, but by the ear and say, yo, dude, whatever you're doing is stupid, stop it, when I would get into trouble at school or, 
or think I was above the law or whatever, you know, he would come along and go, oh, stop it. And he was the only one who really cut through because I cared about him so much. And I loved basketball. How did you get in trouble? Oh, just <laughs> my trouble was nothing uh, romantic uh, uh, or, you know, to write a book about. It was... Uh, it can be pedestrian. It, it, it was pedestrians. Um, okay, here's, here's the funny side of me. I, uh, when I got to Kent at age 13, about to turn 14, I was six foot and weighed 120 pounds. Wow. That, that's very, 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 very skinny and very tall. Very tall. Uh, bullies didn't know what to do with me. They, they'd like to hit me, but they realized I would shatter, so they didn't. <laughs> so I was left alone. But uh, I played football that first year, stupidly. Big mistake. Big mistake. And I actually, uh, some idiot coach who didn't know at this level, you know, just said, oh, go over there, which was basically the linebacker position. And so some fullback came running through the line and I was trying literally to get out of his way, but he kept doing these little moves. And, <laughs> and instead of, you know, we got confused and he ran right over me. And it was so clear in that second that this was not my sport. So, um, and I dislocated my knee later that season playing basketball. So for that rest of the time during the football season, when everybody had to do something, play some sport, I actually had to work for the groundskeeper. His name was Huzzy, and he was a sweet man, very sweet soul, and we grew to love each other, but I was always getting into fights and um, thinking I didn't have to do what he's thinking I was better than him, basically, mm -hmm. and I would get slapped down by my coach, and that was made very clear that I was <laughs> not better than anybody. It's a tough thing for a 14-year-old's uh, ego. And I swore to myself, someday, someday I'll be a big star. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know what? And by the way, that's why cheers happened. It was actually because of that. You know what's so cool about Jim Wood and what he taught me about teamwork was I recognize it. I went to Stanford University after Kent. Right. And my best friend and I were um, both went to Kent School and then we both went to Stanford. And he was a genuine athlete, a superb athlete. And we both decided to go try out for freshman basketball at Stanford, which was pretty major league. It was the year that Lou Alcindor became, was a freshman down at UCLA. So it was clearly, I stepped, I didn't even step on the court. I stood on the edge of the court and, yeah. and just turned around. Just so sad that it was clearly not something that I was gonna be able to do. But about six months later, I found acting. And I remember thinking, well, it's not basketball, but it's, it's close. Right. And it was that sense of ensemble. It was that sense of being part of a team. It was that sense of, you know, putting on a play and being part of that team that does that. Let's give people context because when you're at Stanford, um, you've described your routine at the school as such. <laughs> you woke up, you danced. I danced on at, a tree stump, by the way. And, and look, we told each other we're going to keep each other honest. So thank you for correcting. Yeah. You danced on a tree stump. You turned on the Dick Van Dyke show. And after it was over, you would hop on your bike and mosey your way down to the quad where you may or may not pop into one of your classes. Correct. So far, so good? Not an exaggeration. Literal. Yes. When I describe that version of college, it really sounds like the version teenagers think of and seeing like movies about college life. Yeah. It sounds um, 
like a dream. Well, it was. I think Stanford, you would have had to have assassinated somebody to get kicked out. They didn't care. You know, it was your buck. You know, if you if you choose not to make use of it, then then tough on you. You know, um, but I tried. I tried going to classes early on, and I I was one of those weird people that tested really well because I didn't really care, and I treated yeah. it as a game because it was beyond me. Other people don't like people like you. I know, I know, <laughs> but they surpassed me. You know, very quickly because. I got into all these AP classes at Stanford, and I remember being in the AP English class and sitting there this first or second day going, not only do I not understand what the professor just said, I don't understand the question that this girl asked him right, you know, to prompt that response. I was so over my head that I just <laughs> basically quit and danced on tree stumps. Why do you think you were someone at that age, which is an age where most people feel angst and uncertainty about their future. Why do you think you were someone that could just dance on a tree stump when you woke up in the morning? Ah, I don't know if this is responsive to your question, but I used to, it sounded clever, but it really was my attempt to try to describe that basically, until I met my wife, Mary Steenburgen, basically I kind of walked backwards through life, being delighted by what was coming by me. It wasn't that I ever turned around and declared myself as I want this, I'm going to go after this, this is where I'm going, this is who I am. It was all kind of, oh, how interesting, how interesting. And I lived in a kind of fantasy life. You know, I think my family, which was unbelievable loving, was also very complicated that I didn't know until later in life. And so I lived in a fantasy world, you know, playing and by myself and fantasizing and imagining and all of that. Um, How did their complications affect you? I think it took me a long time to not work really hard to be Ted. You know, I worked really hard to be Ted and it was exhausting. And the Ted would have looked very similar to this. It wasn't that the silhouette was there any much different than this. You would say, oh yeah, I see that. But I, for me, it was exhausting. I had to work very hard to the point where uh, halfway through this podcast, I have to say, I'd make something up. I have to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. Just so I could sit and rest for a second before I went back out and pretended to be who I was. You know, mm -hmm. or I need a cigarette or um, whatever. I think I was always a little bit that way, you know, until I really started to examine myself. Luckily, when I was you know, like 40 or something, I finally kind of matured and was willing to tell the truth and look at myself and all of that. Do you think acting helped you avoid looking at yourself? It's kind of a weird combination of yes, no. I mean, it's like acting, you are, all you have is to, you know, to, to draw on is yourself and your life experiences, and your heart, and your, you know, mind, you know, it's you, who you have to offer. Um, I think it gave me freedom. I, I was used to being, pretending to be who I was, so I might as, you know, it, it, it was, I think that part of myself facilitated acting, enjoying acting, and pretend, you know, I, I, mm. I enjoyed that. I, that's an interesting question. Um, ask it to me again. Right now? Yeah. Do you think acting allowed yourself to avoid yourself? Yeah, 
Sure. And even more than the acting, I wouldn't blame acting. I might blame success in acting a little bit. Um, and going fast. I mean, th this COVID moment is, I would have described myself as very enlightened, humble, yada, yada, and enlightened enough to know that it was false humility. You know, I've got, I'm pretty nimble with contextualizing and all of that. Right. But truth is, I do go fast. I do keep acting. I do keep, you know, hosting the world's impression of me. And I am charming and I am, and I do love people and I, and I do love being loved. And all of that is true. Right. Take that away from, you know, I walk down the streets usually pre this and my life is, hey, Ted, uh, uh, we love you. We love your work. That was funny. Uh, or, you know, they smile. You know, it's a pretty constant water that I swim in. Adoration to some degree. I'm overblowing it, but to some degree, that's what I walk in. And then on March 4th, boom, that's over. Right. <laughs> and what it left me with was realizing you take away the, all those trappings that may be wonderful. And I, I kind of painted them as bad or wrong. And they're not, you know, they were wonderful, but they were trappings. They weren't me. And when you take those away, here's an example. I was able to sit there and look at Mary, who I love, had from the day I met her, but realized, you know what, Ted, you've gotten to the point where you wait for her to be just far enough along in whatever she's communicating to you to go, oh, I see where she's going. Let me jump in and figure out what I'm going to say. Yep, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to interrupt. Right. Because I had to keep things moving along. But I didn't stop and appreciate who she was to this degree since probably I met her. You know, it's like, what else are you going to do <laughs> when you're quarantined except perhaps be real? I think to arrive at that at 72 is a really unusual and, and kind of unique experience. Yeah, I agree. I think I could have coasted across the finish line or roared across the finish line. Roared. It would have been a roar. <laughs> Dribbled across <laughs> the finish line and not had this moment, you know, and I'm very grateful for it. I want to go back to maybe when the <laughs> trappings start. You're laughing at me. For no, I'm just back. noticing you have a very seductive voice. So it's like, yeah, yeah, let's go back. Yeah. Yeah, I want to go back. Wherever you're taking me, I want to go there. <laughs> By the way, the, the idea that I could uh, seduce you anywhere, given that you're Ted Danson, is, I think, a joke to everyone. Okay, well, go... it's all right. Let me, I should, I should correct that. It's no, your, mic, your, it. your microphone <laughs> is seducing the hell out of me. <laughs> so let's go there, if you're willing to go there with me. Yeah. Um, in 1981, you're in a film called Body Heat one of my favorite movies from the 80s. And what's interesting here is that this film happens about a year or two after you have your first child. And it's one of the first movies you're in. I think it's the second film you're in. What are your memories about making that film and finding your feet in movies, something you wanted to do in the 10 years leading up to it? First off, you could take the script that we auditioned with, you could take it to a movie theater today, theoretically, and conduct it like a score. Literally everything is there, every comma, every word, every shot. I think because Larry Kasdan 
came from advertising and was used to storyboarding. And I, I don't know if this is accurate, but what I thought I heard was that he had storyboarded the film three times before he had even shot it. So we would shoot uh, a half a master and a quarter of a close-up. I'm exaggerating probably, but it was that specific. So to be in those kind of sure hands was, even though I didn't realize it because I was just starting, was remarkable. Um, and Bill was, a, a, was, is a very serious actor. And for years, I used to use poor Bill Hurt as my hammer to beat myself up. Oh, Bill wouldn't have taken this. You know, Bill wouldn't do this sitcom. Or, oh, you know, I would use Bill as my weapon of choice to beat myself up. He was a very serious actor. And so was Kath, everyone was. So, you know, rehearsals and um, you threw yourself into that make-believe world wholeheartedly. And then we had this kind of um, weird blessing where I can't remember who struck. Probably the writer's strike happened. And we had, instead of a two-week rehearsal, we immediately had a two-month rehearsal. So we just kept rehearsing. Uh, my character loved Fred Astaire and would dance at the, try to dance at the drop of a hat. So I got to work with the choreographer jumping off car bumpers and doing dances and stuff for two months. So mm -hmm. everything became more ingrained in you. It was like a, a rehearsal for a play, but it was being shot as a movie, which is a real luxury. Um, I remember we went to Florida and there was a, a cold snap when we did all the outside scenes on the docks, 38 you know, degrees, 30, dropping down almost to freezing at night. And we would be all sitting there in our t-shirts or you know, shirts being spritzed down, <laughs> literally. So you'd have sweat, you know, and they sometimes have to suck an ice cube not to have breath show on, on film. It seems, looking at you right now through the Zoom call, it feels very far away for you. Yeah, you know, without trying to judge, you know, you always judge yourself early on. I do. I had a hard time watching the first year, my performance in the first year of Cheers. When I watch Body Heat, I, I feel like I um, lacked that, one of my favorite phrases, requisite disrespect for the material. I felt like I was tilting forward to please. Just, just a hint of that in my acting, which makes me a little nervous when I watch it. Um, I did not have that kind of arrogance, which I think is important for an actor. Arrogance mixed with humility, you know, so that you take your time you know, you don't look at a scene and go, oh, I, I know this scene is supposed to uh, build to this dramatic moment. And uh, it may not be feeling it quite, but I'll build it anyway because I'm a nice actor. I'll give everybody what they want. As opposed to some people who look arrogant acting-wise and say, no, I don't get it. No, I'm not going to do that. Or, you know, there's a balance, obviously. But I felt like I, early on, it was unbalanced into the, towards the, wanting to please and not having that kind of requisite disrespect for the material. You found that you loved the ensemble nature of acting. Yep. Which starts with your love of basketball. Yep. How did you reconcile your love of the ensemble with a tendency to probably people please? 
better ask that again in a way that I don't see the conflict. <laughs> I'm not sure you've described uh, two opposite choices. <laughs> Seems right to me. I bring that up because you mentioned how starting in March 4th. Hey, can I just br- draw to the, uh, the hearers, not the viewers, attention to the fact that you will laugh silently and then very seductively get back on the mic as if you hadn't broken down into laughter. You had just very calmly moved on. So I just want to call you out on that bullshit. Great. Thank you. Yeah, and and by the way, that speaks to your people-pleasing nature because you need to have my laugh registered. <laughs> yes. Make that audible, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. Of course. You're very funny. Okay. By the way... If, if people are listening to this podcast to figure out that you're funny, they have bigger problems. Good they point. know you're funny. So wait, let me hear your, your thing again. Okay. Sorry. So let's, let, I, lo- I love this kind of uh, back and forth. This is really you um, interrogating my own questions with me. Yes. But it's a question, I think, you know, it's funny. So much of what I ask in these conversations, um, and we've been doing it for four years, are questions... Um, designed to look like they are about the person I'm talking to. Right, right. But in actuality, they're actually just for me. <laughs> a lot of the questions are rooted in my own neuroses and my own fears. And in this case, your tendency to be a people pleaser is one I relate to. Also starting out playing high school basketball like yourself and now wanting to direct and write and doing this show, I have a tendency socially and in work to people, please. But I find, and this is what I'm trying to ask you about, when March 4th happened, when we can no longer swim in the adoration of strangers, you start to ask yourself, how the fuck am I going to stay afloat without that? Yeah. And so that's what I'm interested in. Did you ever find that your need to people pleased interfered with your own happiness. Sure. Sure, absolutely. First off, people pleasing isn't the end of the world. You know what? I, I think that my job in life, what makes me happy, whether it's a neurosis or a problem, what makes me happy is that you and I walk away from this, you feeling good about yourself, you know. I think that's a courtesy mm-hmm. that if you can, if the person's not a raving, harmful asshole, if you can make them try to find the best in them and make them feel good about that, yeah, that's right. That's what you're supposed to do as a fellow human being, I think. And that's the whole point of this show, by the way. I hope you leave this and think, yeah, I did a good job. No, I can feel that. So we're having a good time. Um, it does get in your way if you tilt too far forward. You know, Mary, who adores me, loves me. Adoration is our middle name. We love it, you know. But she is so real and down to earth. And she's a little more shy in public. But she's always, not literally, but tugging on my sleeve and going, yo, dude, don't tilt so far forward. Because it's not real. Mm -hmm. If you're tilting forward, a lot of times I will keep tilting forward because I enjoy the feeling. I enjoy the adrenaline rush. But it's beyond the moment that deserved the bonhomie, you know, that deserve the tilting forward. I will keep wanting to, like an addict, keep that good feeling going. Then I keep going in that search for feeling good. 
and I will get into unreal, unauthentic places. That happens in life, and it also happens in my acting. It's funny you say that because um, that situation that you're describing, that kind of roller coaster of wanting to please and feel good, it's exactly what happens in the midst of cheers because when you folks perform those live shows, there would be this unbelievable high. And afterward, the cast and crew would want to stay out and drink and continue kind of rock and rolling in the 80s. And I wondered in hearing you say that, how sustainable that was in that time when Cheers was at the peak of its powers, so to speak. Well, it wasn't. Was it for me? I mean, I got divorced towards the end of Cheers. Um, I was not a, you know, fully honest uh, husband. Uh, I was not fully honest with myself. I was full of shit in many ways. And it was very rock and roll, you're right, which is uh, a great trapping, you know. Um, It's hard for me to see you as someone full of shit. Well, I was. I was, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to go into it all, but I was very publicly uh, full of shit. Here's the deal. I, I was not honest with myself. I was still playing, you know, the silhouette game. I was still pretending to be Ted, and it was exhausting. And because it was so exhausting, then I would have, uh, I would deserve. I am so perfect, I'm so nice, I'm so kind, I'm so all of these things, and now I need a fucking break, and now I deserve. And that kind of behavior, th- uh-huh. that kind of thought process is uh, part of a, being addicted to whatever it is you're addicted to. So that's what I mean by not being honest and real. Instead of saying, hey, don't do that, that upsets me, I'll go, oh, I can live with that because I'll have my reward. Right. I get it. So this, this, and this justified this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we talk about the work for a moment? Because um, in rewatching Cheers, which uh, many people are doing right now, uh, especially in quarantine because they find refuge in the show, you've talked about it a bunch, but I, I'm interested um, in some of the people in your life that you've collaborated with, like James Burroughs. What do you think it is about him that is special in your eyes as a man and as a collaborator? Well, I, I, I mean, he really, and I've told him this many, many times, but he was like my daddy in show business. He literally taught me everything, took me under his wing. I got to meet all these amazing people from MTM days, you know, whether it's Grant Tinker or, you know, Carl Reiner, all of those people that came from that strain of comedy, uh, everything in Grant Tinker, all, you know, all of these people that had so much respect for Jimmy or knew Jimmy or whatever, he opened all those doors to me. So I got to experience this comedic community that I had so much respect for. So it was like, and the writing was so good. It was like I got to be, we all did, I'm saying I, but we all got to be as a cast introduced to society, you know, to Hollywood in this most elegant way. Beautiful writing, respected writers and directors. So I'm forever grateful for that. On a more personal level, you know, he was, he knew where the joke was. 
and he would guide you to it. You know, he would not let you. He was okay if you uh, didn't hit the joke over the head, but he taught you where the funny was. And what was great about Cheers is you could either be ridiculous or you could even just barely touch on the joke, and it still kind of worked because the writing was so good. He would laugh. You'll hear his laugh during episodes. He wouldn't hide his laugh like I would. No, he actually during. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, correct. <laughs> Um, during rehearsals, Jimmy would laugh at every joke. And we thought, dear Lord, is he for real? It was almost unreal. Come on, Jimmy, that wasn't that funny. But what he was doing for the actors was training them that there's a laugh here. I'm telling you, the audience, because we had live audiences, it wasn't taped or anything. It was in front, I mean, it was in front of a camp, you know, audience. And like theater, they were a big part of our show. So he would train you to be aware of, don't be rushing through this because they're not going to hear the next line because they're going to be laughing. So he was very smart about funny. He was also, he respected writers and he respected actors. And a lot of time, actors and writers who are both highly sensitized creatures are at each other. They will blame each other or, you know, who wrote this? I, that's, this is not as good as last week. And if the stupid actors would just say the words, it would, you know, that, that there's a tendency if left unchecked for that to happen. And Jimmy was always in the middle going, no, 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 what they've written is right. He would coach you and listen to you to get the writer's point of view if there was ever a problem with that. And he could tell the writers, I know it's the ninth year and they're barely saying mm -hmm. their words and they're not even showing up for rehearsal, but they got this. They got it. Don't worry. They'll say your words in the cool of the evening. Do you know the in the cool of the evening joke? I don't think so. Right. Well, legend has it that Pearl Bailey out of town for a Broadway, big Broadway show, um, Hello Dolly, I think, or something. And the producer came in and they had two weeks to opening. And he said, Pearl, you're saying different words Every night, you know, it's two weeks before we open in New York. We're all a little bit worried. And she said, honey, in the cool of the evening, when the fucking begins, I'll be there. <laughs> I just love that. Anyway, he would, he would, he kept saying to us, Jimmy Burroughs, that he was training kind of comedy commandos. He didn't care about rehearsals as long as he saw that you got it. He cared that you showed up. And in that moment when it counted, you were funny, you know, and that's all he cared about. Do you feel like you always showed up? No. Oh, yes. Yes. Was I good? <laughs> you know, did I dunk the first, ball? First no. answer. No. Oh, wait. Yes. No. Yes. No, that's the answer. Yes. I, I always showed up. Whether I succeeded uh, is a different matter. And how we showed up changed over the years because you need that adrenaline pump before you perform. And if you ever go out kind of in a lackadaisical, oh, I got this, you, you are going to get screwed. You're going to get trampled. Mm -hmm. So how we would deal with that is we would rehearse less and less so that when you got in front of the audience, you would go, oh, dear God, maybe I overdid it. <laughs> maybe I find... And so your, all your senses would become alive and you would, you know, be full of adrenaline. But um, yeah, we all showed up. You know... A few years back, we had Alan Alda on, uh. and we talked about MASH a little bit. And afterward, we were talking, 
And I was like, you probably are sick of talking about MASH. And he's like, if no one ever asked me a question about it again, I'd be perfectly okay. And I was thinking about what he said as I was preparing for this today because um, Cheers has been uh, immortalized in its way and you have been asked about it too many times, probably. So the one thing I do want to ask, which maybe you haven't thought about or something you're not asked often, what is your relationship to the show for yourself at 72? Well, it's interesting, and I, I probably would have had a different answer, but I'm not unlike uh, everyone else during this pandemic who happened to be watching Cheers to feel good at 11 o'clock at night or whenever they go to bed. I, too, have started watching. Mary and I have started watching. And I'm just delighted because it's so far away. When she says, what happens next, I truly don't know. So I get to be an audience all over again, you know, because so much time has passed. It's funny. It's really funny. I mean, they were funny. And the funny still holds up. I'm happy not to talk about Cheers, but I am happy to talk about it because I literally would not be here if it weren't for Cheers. I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't be anything if it weren't for Cheers. And I'm very grateful. You know, it was an amazing, it was like I was given this ambassadorship in life to walk (laughs) around and uh, host people's memories of cheers is not a bad gig it's funny you mentioned mary and we haven't talked about her too much but i want to go to 1993 when you meet her on pontiac moon um of the time you said i was a mess and a half i thought i'm incapable of being in a relationship but i was working on myself ironic how life works in those moments once you throw your arms up and surrender a lot of times things come your way. Wow, that was very eloquent. Um, Those were your words. Yeah, no, that's what I meant. <laughs> Doesn't sound like me. Um, uh, but yes. Oh, that sounded good. Are you sure that was me? Yeah, exactly. Um, listen, you know, you know, I can't claim any knowledge of how life works, really, but that's how it worked for me. Uh, my life was a mess. But it was way messier than the the public mess. It was even messier. And I was took it very seriously. And I had a mentor that I worked with for uh, two years. And I don't think if I had not started that process of being emotionally truthful with myself and growing up, uh, that Mary would have even seen me in life. We wouldn't have even, you know, life wouldn't have put us in the same room. It's funny, Mary, had, by the way, had the exact same thought. that she, she says that she looks like someone who'd be really good at relationships, but she realized right before we met that clearly she wasn't, and she probably was going to just resign herself to not being in a relationship. And we literally met, and it has, you know, it had a little bit of, you know, it felt like divine intervention. We were two lost souls. We really were. And uh, we're both, I think our silhouettes, were, we're not wrong. You know, I grew up uh, being taught to be kind and sensitive and loving, and I was loved unconditionally. So I had all the tools to, to make my life work. Um, 
And I think they just finally kind of kicked into gear right around the same time I met Mary. And we both realize to this day how lucky we are, how blessed we are. And we don't take it for granted. We celebrate it all the time. When you met her and you two fell in love, was that the moment where you stopped walking backwards? Yep. Yep. I remember. Uh, This is no disrespect. I've been married twice before meeting Mary. So no disrespect uh, to either one of the ladies. But the first marriage, I do not remember asking her to marry me. I just, we just kind of, as students, all of a sudden were married. Always a good sign. Yeah. Second time, I was stoned when we decided to get married. Not always the most thoughtful process. And, I, and I'm grateful. I have, you know, two amazing kids. So I think it was the first time that I really thought about it. And I walked around like an idiot. <laughs> I am, by the way, very lame. I am amused by how lame I am, which kind of saves my ass, but I'm very lame. I walked around with a wedding ring, knowing how madly in love I was with Mary. I walked around for about two months with it in my pocket, practicing, I want to marry you. And I'd go, I want to marry you. God, Mm -hmm. no, that's wrong. I want to marry you. God, what's wrong? I'm just not feeling... It took me forever to realize, will you marry me? (laughs) Will you be my wife? You know, was the question. And as soon as I went, aha, we got married. I asked her, um, anyway. (laughs) You were an actor. You were trying to get the line reading right. Yeah, and it was wrong. (laughs) You know, being lame is not a bad way to go. It really is. As long as you have a sense of humor about yourself, that goes a long way in life. What does lame mean to you? Um... Mary describes it as the first time we made love. She, she thought I was this slick guy from Cheers, Hollywood guy. I was Sam. And then she realized that slick guys don't say gosh rooney after making love. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. That's lame. No, it's, it's something. Yeah. Um, oh, my Lord. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Where where does one even find a word like that? I don't know, but they're coming back. And here's what uh, it tickles me to say phrases that I heard my father say that probably tickled him to say these phrases that his father had said. So basically, <laughs> I'm saying phrases from the early 1901 you know, era and thinking it's kind of fun. Uh, your father seemed to have a big impact on you. Yeah. And I know... Um, in 2000, he passed. He was in his comfortable chair watching this old house. I think he had a steak, a drink or two. And your mother called out, Ned, are you enjoying your TV show? And then she came to him, sat next to him, held his hand, and felt his pulse. How did you get through his passing. Wow, first off, um, thank you for that. That was, uh, that was a lovely description of literally what happened. Uh, I was not there. I flew in hours later. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know how to, I'll, I'll ramble for a second, but 
his body had been taken uh, before I got to the house. And then the next morning, my sister and I um, went to the mortuary uh, funeral home. And he died very peacefully. I mean, you know, had a, probably his arteries were like a joke by then. And he just fell asleep. And um, so he was very peaceful. And he was sitting, he was lying, sitting, he was lying in the, this casket or whatever. And when I looked at him, it was like, oh my God, what an amazing wax replica of my father. And it would make me almost, I, I almost laughed with the incredulity of it all. It was just, my question almost in my head, whether I was, it was literally there, was how did you do that? How did you leave your body? Because you, you're just, you're so clearly not there anymore. That's your body. And then to be real or emotional, I would have to turn away. And then my emotions would flood in. But if I turned back and looked at him, it was just too unreal and uh, not funny is the wrong word, but stunning. It was stunning. Um, I was very much at peace with my father. I was very blessed. And I had, uh, you know, he was very much a part of my uh, growing up. 15, I guess, 15 years before he died. You know, he was very much part of that. And so I was at peace. There wasn't anything I hadn't said to him. And, and uh, we loved each other. And he had Alzheimer's, so he was getting, he presented well and all of that. But he was, uh, I'd have to leave him notes if we had an argument. My mom, this was so sweet, she said, I know you both had words last night, and, and I know you both made up at the end, but he won't remember that. Do you mind leaving a note for him in the morning saying, I love you, everything's good? Um, you know, <laughs> how, how sweet is that? But anyway, um, I think I, we all saw it coming for so long that it was partly a relief. It was more about my mother then. It wasn't as dramatic as when my mother died. In 2006. Yeah. When my mother died, um, they both kind of died the way they wanted. I think my father wanted no fuss. My mother wanted to... She died the way she lived. She wanted... She passionately... She got pneumonia and couldn't shake it. And the doctor said, we're going to have to put you in the hospital with tubes. And, and she could barely... Speak she couldn't. She was had laryngitis badly from the last coughing fit or something like that. So she couldn't really communicate. But she said, "Thank God, they, you know, if you don't go to the hospital, you're going to die." And she clasped her hands together and went, "Thank God." And so we took her home, and it was so bizarre to take this woman who was, you know, so vital in her 89th year. Uh, and all of a sudden you weren't fighting for life, you were now letting go of life and allowing life to end. It was such a strange moment because she was very present. And we went home and the hospice person was there and who, you know, they're, they're like angels from another planet. Those people are so real, genuine, uh, very descriptive of what's coming your way and very kind and gentle and reassuring. So it was amazing. But she, the hospice person, at one point said to my mom, who was in bed by then, comfortable and very alert, 
but couldn't talk. Um, at a certain point, we will give your, you morphine when so your body can relax and let go. And she went, no. My mother went, no. And for the next 45 minutes, my sister and I were like playing this furious game of charades, trying to figure out what she wanted. She said, I want to burn. And it was like, we couldn't understand. But from her kind of uh, faith background, there was a sense that if you consciously choose to suffer, consciously embrace the suffering, I mean, when you're passing, that you can burn off certain of your whatever. It's a good thing for your soul to do, to, to be consciously aware of the suffering as you pass. Do not drug me. Um, and that's kind of what happened. And these monks from uh, Colorado who loved my mother and father came down and every evening there'd be, they'd sing evening prayers and the Hopi and Navajo that my, they had known over the years would come and sit by her and she'd keep rallying for the next person to come in. My mother was not great with uh, some things in life, but man, if people were suffering or dying or anything, she was there. No problem being there in this. So everyone who had been nursed by her in some way uh, came to pay their respects and she'd lose consciousness for a while and then someone would come in and she'd wake up. It was just amazing. She had that life, that, that death that was very much like her life, very conscious. And uh, it was hard, I think, on me because it's very hard to watch a body disintegrate, you know, while still living. Um, so when she did pass, it took me probably about a month to get to grief. It was most like, more like just post-traumatic stress. And then when I got to grief, it was like, unlike with my father, it was like, it's so strange with mothers because it's like, the reason why you're walking is literally because, <laughs> because of every cell in her body she gave to you, you know? You're breathing because she was there to help you breathe, literally. So it was like, I was 57. I was mm -hmm. successful. I was happy. I was married. Everything was in place. And I would walk on the beach when I took time to grieve, and I would be crying like a nine-year-old saying, what am I going to do? How do I go on? Because when you take that mother out of your life, it's just, it was different than my father. It was kind of like, yeah, we're men. Men, you die, and I get it. And thank you for teaching me this lesson of how to leave your body and everything. But mom, that took me a long time. So how did you go on? Um... Well, you know what? Here's what I, watching my mother, I had the night shift. My sister who lived next door would be there during the day and I'd try to sleep, but I'd be the one at night with her. And, uh, <laughs> boy, we're, you, you can cut the hell out of this. I don't care. I'm having fun talking to you. But they were full of like really false starts that were kind of funny. I'd watch her and she would stop breathing. And she'd stop, and I'd watch. And I'd was like a minute, a minute and a half. Oh my God, I have to wake up my sister. Jenny, Jenny, I'm afraid it's time. And then she started breathing. I went, sorry, go back to sleep. <laughs> you know, it was so strange an experience. <laughs> anyway, I sat there with all of my little religious beliefs, my philosophies, my Zen, my, you know, uh, you name it, uh, my little 
self journeys along the way. And I looked, they all went flying out the window because death is so real. You know, it was like, okay, I don't know. I realize I have no idea. Maybe my mother does. Maybe she does in this moment. I have no idea. So after she died, I stopped being, I boiled it down very simply to, hey, Ted, try to do the right thing in this moment. Because you, you do know what the right thing is. Just focus on this moment and do the right thing. Is there life after death? I sure hope so. There's got to be a campfire where we all laugh at each other and go, e-all. But, you know, <laughs> um, I don't know. So just do the best you can. Try to be a little better each day. This is so much um, at the heart of The Good Place. Yeah. And there's this episode in season two where your character faces his first existential crisis. <laughs> where he slowly starts to understand the ephemerality of existence. (laughs) Isn't life grand? I mean, come on. What a great game. Whoever whoever invented this, pretty good. (laughs) I'm genuinely curious. How did you arrive at that notion? It's probably a little bit the scientist, the archaeologist, not me, but my father, and I was surrounded by science and archaeology, and I was surrounded by religion, my mother. Um, You know, you look at all of us, for how many centuries, you'd think that there would be a game book on how to live, you know, but no, each one of us have to do our journey our way and fight for our version of enlightenment you know what? It just feels, it feels too perfect. Every time you think you've um, figured it out, you realize you haven't. Pride goeth before a fall over and over and over and over again. And by the way, after this kind of relatively enlightened conversation, I will walk outside and step into a gigantic pile of karmic poo. It's guaranteed that something's waiting for me after I wax philosophical. Mm-hmm. You'll let me know what happens. I will. (laughs) We'll film it. Before we go, I have two things for you. The first is, again, we we mentioned how so many of the questions that I'm asking you are really questions I have rattling around for myself. Are you afraid of death? I'll find out, you know. Um... I'm probably so afraid of death that I've wrapped myself in all these philosophical or amusing thoughts. Uh, Sure, I mean, I love my life. I love living. I am so grateful for getting to live this life. So I don't want to let it go. And when the time comes, I'm sure it won't won't be enough kind of feeling. Um, I, (laughs) I have this thing where I'm... Mary likes to call it hypochondria. I like it to call it just a you know interest in my body. Um, That's a generous way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> so I'm interested in what's going on with my body, especially unexplained pains and things that come your way. If you tell me, well, you broke your leg, I'll go, okay, and I'll suck it up. But if it's unexplained pain, it just makes me crazy. So I start mm-hmm. to get anxious and paranoid, and it's... Uh, Usually it's about some unacknowledged emotion or something. And what usually breaks my spiral downwards is I'll finally look in the mirror and say, shut up. 
either die or shut up. I don't care which. Seriously, you can die or you can shut up, but I'm not going to continue this conversation with you. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that'll still be my choice or something. I don't know. Hey, I'm sure whatever I say will be a gigantic yaw at the end of my life. You know, uh, here's what I hope. Let me put it this way. I hope that my passing is not adrenaline packed. It would be nice to be able to spend your last moment saying thank you. And uh, this also is part of my life, dying. So I don't want to be fearful. I'm sure there's situations where, guess what? You're going to be fearful. But it'd be nice if you could have a moment of, wow, look at this. Here I come. Thank you. Wherever we're going, wow. What have you learned about being in love having been with Mary as long as you have. Oh, well, you can make me cry here because one of the reasons why, I, um, I remember at, at age 40, I, I would say, if, I, if a truck hit me right now as I cross the street, my last thought would be, shit, damn it. I didn't do it. I didn't live, you know. And now I feel like because of Mary and because of experience, experiencing love that is like this circular thing, we're not always in it. We don't live in it. But a vast majority of the time, we're in this circular whirlwind of love that is just amazing. So I will say this, and I hope I remember it in that moment, is I've gotten to know what it's like to be loved and to be able to love someone else and to be loved by that person, which has to be one of the most amazing human things, you know. I really got that, and I've gotten it day after day, and that to me is like, okay, you know, that to me is probably the, the whole point of experiencing love that way. On the other side of this, what do you two want? Wow. Not to be fearful about the re-entry. Good Lord, you know. The doorbell rings, and you kind of leap up. Um, uh, all right, let me be, uh, I, there are two things. There are all these kind of personal, emotional things. But really, what I would love is for the world to put science back where it belongs, especially this country. Those people who are saving our lives are using science with the medication, with their studies, with all the implements, with everything. It's science. It's the same science that is telling us that the climate is changing the planet forever. It's the same science that says you keep burning fossil fuels and creating greenhouse gases. It's the same science that tells us plastics are overwhelming the oceans. That's science. You don't get to cherry pick what science you use you know, to save your life. So I hope that we can put science back on the throne, you know, along with God. It doesn't have to be a competition. And I also think that that social justice, you know, you cannot look at this moment and not go, oh, those people who are saving your lives, who are, you know, risking theirs and dying at higher rates are the people that are of color, that are black, Hispanic. Asian, you know, these are the people who are saving your life because of their courage. You cannot go, and the teachers that make your life bearable and take your sweet children and teach them, all those people, the, the garbage collector, everybody who makes it possible for us to stay home, better be elevated 
you know, not just thanks so much, buddy, and we'll move back into full steam ahead. Life does have to change. And I truly believe that the COVID-19 is not some random mistake. It's not. We are going to have more and more of this because the earth is changing because of our behavior. So we need to use science. We need a health system that works for everyone. And we need to take care of those people who we have, you know, um, paid to do the dirty work. You know, who, ah, sorry. Social justice, science, climate change. Boy, we better get on that bandwagon. What are the personal things you and Mary hope for? outside of this, on the other side? Oh, that's easy. I want life. I want life. I don't want to get this. I want life. I want to be around my grandchildren. I want to, I want to come home safe and sound to my wife and my family. Yeah, I want to experience life. I don't feel like I'm through. I, want to, I may have retired. We don't know. But uh, I want to keep acting. I love acting. Um, but I do know that when we sit there sometimes and go, all right, we need to work to make money. We love to work, but let's never do it to the point where we lose this, this time between each other that it's just us and we slam the doors and, and it's just us being together. You know, just two kids pulling the covers over our heads and kind of giggling and enjoying each other. I don't want to lose that ever again. So that would be part of, I don't want to go back to business as usual and lose some of this amazing uh, feelings that we've gotten by being together like this. Well, I want to thank you for uh, spending some of your time together with me. I've had the best time, whether it's your mic, your mustache, I'm not 100% sure, but I truly have, it's, uh, you gave me a gift today, thank you. Really, truly mean that. Well, thank you for giving uh, all of us a gift for the last 40-something years. Ted Danson, thank you very much. Thank you so much. And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Carolina Kecki and Annette Wolf. I'd also like to thank Mr. Danson for his time. When he's not acting, Ted works with this wonderful group called Oceana. They're the largest international advocacy organization dedicated solely to ocean conservation. With more than 225 victories that stop overfishing, habitat destruction, pollution, and the killing of threatened species like turtles and sharks, Oceana's campaigns are delivering results. Even in this COVID-19 crisis, they're continuing to do good work on behalf of you and I and this planet we share. To learn more about them and all that they do, be sure to visit their site at www.oceana.org. If you'd like to learn more about TED, you can visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd encourage you to check out our robust back catalog, including great talks with other TV legends, including Rob Reiner, Norman Lear, Alan Alda, and Sam Waterston. You can find those episodes and more on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you do your listening. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. 
And if you'd like to drop us a line, feel free to do so at talkeasypod at gmail.com. Our show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janexa Bravo, associate producer Nikki Spina, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, graphics by Ian Jones. Our social media is by Deja Washington, music by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our editors are Andre Lin and Kat Owen. And finally, the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Unfortunately, this was a painful week across the U.S. and in the entertainment industry. We lost titans like Little Richard, Jerry Stiller, and Fred Willard. We also lost director Lynn Shelton. She passed away far too soon at the age of 54. My condolences go out to her family, her friends, her collaborator, and her partner, Mark Marin. Ask anyone about Lynn Shelton, and they will speak of her kindness, of her laugh, of her irrepressible spirit. I remember at 19, meeting her and thinking, oh my God, what a force of fucking nature. What a strong, good, decent person. It doesn't make any sense, and I'm not going to try to make sense of it, but uh, boy, oh boy, if you never got to witness Lynn's decency and spirit in person, you can see it in her work. May it live on, and may she live with it. This next song will not mend the broken heart, and God knows Uh, The likelihood of sitting in a bar anytime soon gets bleaker and bleaker with each passing day. But in the interim, in this intermission, at least we have this. Rest in peace, Lynn. And have a safe week, everyone. I'll see you next Sunday. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot Wouldn't you like to get away? The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.